I love counterfactuals, but at the end of the day, I know that there's only one history. The only history that happened is the one in which we exist. And so anything I tweak, anything can happen. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Fenderson Jelly Clark. He's a writer of fantasy and speculative fiction. He has won or been nominated for just about every award for speculative fiction and fantasy you can fit on the shelf. The Hugo, the Nebula, Sturgeon, the World Fantasy Award. His new novel, A Master of Gene, expands a universe in which supernatural beings of Middle Eastern and Egyptian mythology live alongside humans in 1910s Cairo. And just last year, he published a novella called Ring Shout, where the white hoods of the Ku Klux Klan conceal actual demons from another dimension. His characters, whether they're solving cases in steampunk Cairo or chasing Hellspawn across Georgia, feel as real as any historical figure. And maybe that has something to do with his day job as an academic historian. We're going to get into all of that and more in this interview. Fenderson Jelly Clark, welcome to Kobo. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, that was a fascinating intro. Uh, I should hire you to do that more often. <laughs> Hype man. That's a, that's what, yeah, that was that's, great. That's what I'm shooting for as a as a next career. Listen, pointy-headed flesh-eating demons hiding under pointy white hoods is maybe the best premise for a supernatural horror story that I've ever come across. Uh, so we're gonna get into that in a second. You have two big groupings of work right now, and I want to talk about both of them. The yeah. first are uh, some very different stories that draw on the African diaspora. One, Ring Shout, set in the American South. The other, The Black God's Drums, an alternate history version of New Orleans. Uh, let's talk about Ring Shout first, because that's how we get to pointy-headed, flesh-eating demons the fastest. <laughs> right. Tell me about uh, Maurice Boudreau and the Ku Klux Klan she's fighting. Yeah, in, in Ring Shout, this the story that uh, kind of popped into my head and sat with me for a few years before I could figure out what I wanted to do with it. Uh, Maurice is a bootlegger along with her friends. Uh, if you're going to write something in the 1920s, you've got to have some bootlegging going on, right? <laughs> That's what's happening in the background. She's a bootlegger in rural uh, Georgia and Macon, Georgia. And she's also fighting the Klan, who, as you point out, are also extra-dimensional monsters. Um, you know, when I envisioned this story, it was always... People have called it a horror story. People have called it gothic. And I've also latched onto some of those names. But at the end of the day, I was writing a fantasy story, right? Uh, I have a heroine, she has a sword, and she fights monsters. <laughs> it just so happened <laughs> that I wanted to tell a fantasy story in a place most people wouldn't expect to tell a fantasy story. And I said, why not? They don't all have to be, you know, some pre-industrial medieval setting. Uh, they can take place in time periods you wouldn't expect and in, in you know, backgrounds you wouldn't expect. Uh, and uh, the Southern folklore and Southern mythology and everything else gave me, it just gave me everything I needed. And um, I was really happy that people uh, went along with that ride because <laughs> I wasn't sure they would. <laughs> it is a great ride to go on. Did did bringing the fantasy and the horror into the story let you some let you explore some ideas about that time period in a different way? You know, one of the things is, uh, as I always relate, the idea for these pointy-headed, fleshy, extra-dimensional uh, beings actually come from um, ex-slaves who 
during interviews that were taken in the 1930s and late 1920s, not too far from the time period I'm in, uh, they describe the first Ku Klux Klan, uh, which arises after the Civil War, as haints or as, you know, spirits or, or monsters or demons in some places, in some cases. And they point out that this first Klan didn't dress the way we think the Klan dresses. Some of them wore pointed horns on their heads. Uh, others blackened their faces or did various different things or pretended they had tails. And so the idea of the Klan as monsters, I owe to them. <laughs> And so what I did was I just projected that in onto the second clan and the coming of birth of a nation. It just seemed it just seemed like that that works perfectly, right? To to, to use that folklore to explore this time period. So in, in some ways, I'm, I'm using the this mythology and this folklore that arose from these former slaves, uh, basically these free people, um, talking about the horror that they lived through after the Civil War and the way they used fantasy and folklore to relate their trauma. And I wanted to talk about this second period of the Klan, which I think people know less about. Um, even though the Klan was this powerful force, I was able to explore that uh, during this time period, as well as, again, the movie Birth of a Nation. Talk about Birth of a Nation for a second, because it almost mm -hmm. is, it's either its own character or it's an organizing principle in the story. Like right, it kind of yeah. begins it and ends it. Yeah, Birth of a Nation uh, comes out in 1915. Um, of course, it's, it's probably known as, it's, it's known as two things. Uh, it's known as one of the uh, first bits of modern cinema, which a lot of present day cinema uh, kind of grows out of, the camera angles that were used, the score that was used. Um, it basically revolutionizes how uh, cinema is going to be done. So it's considered, you know, they're at the very dawn of cinema, uh, and at the same time, it's also one of the most infamous movies ever made because the heroes in this movie are the Ku Klux Klan, <laughs> and the villains are basically everyone else. Um, and you know, uh, it's this lost cause revisionist version of history, this this false narrative that, uh, in many ways, we're still contending with today, right? When we speak of uh, Confederate monuments and these things, so it, it has this. It has this power to continue on in other films like Gone with the Wind or what have you. This narrative that uh, that that it was part of um, lingers on in many ways. And yet it has this important place uh, with the beginning of our understanding of how we look at modern media and film. Uh, and when it came out, it, it, it was it was um, quite a phenomenon. Uh, people had never seen anything like it. Uh, moviegoers, white moviegoers watching the film would swoon in their seats. They would faint at certain scenes. Uh, there's a newspaper report that I always like pointing to in Florida of a man who pulls out a gun and starts shooting at the screen uh, to stop a figure who is a white man in blackface, uh, supposedly chasing a, a young white woman. And he pulls out his gun to shoot at this figure because to him, this is so real. And I teach classes on uh, media and media theory. And so it, Birth of a Nation is always a great place to start this discussion, not only on how media uh, gives us representation, but the very power of media, the medium of film itself, and what kind of power this may have over us. And students love debating, right? Uh, how, how, much, how much does the film impact them? How much are they bringing to the film? That, will help them interpret it and so on. And so 
there's just a, there's just a there was always a lot to discuss and unpack with Birth of a Nation, and so making it as you say a character or a, a central point in this in this book or movie magic, dare I say, uh, just seemed fitting. One of the themes in Ring Shout is about anger, you know, how it's used, how it's yeah. focused. What do we learn about the the uses and the dangers of anger across the course of this story? Yeah, it's a that's a great question, and you know, one of the things that when I was when I was creating this story, I wanted to be certain that I didn't uh, give the impression that I was saying that the Ku Klux Klan were simply monsters, right? Uh, that they were mm-hmm. pointy-headed monsters, and that's where their hate came from. So I, I, I made certain I wanted to say like, no, they, they're human beings who choose to do this. That the hate turns them into this, but the hate is something they bring. Right. It's, it's what they give <laughs> to this. And so I wanted to make sure I didn't I didn't, you know, lessen them to monsters, because if they're just monsters, well, then it doesn't help us deal with the human experience. And the fact that human beings can hold these uh, ill thoughts of each other and carry out horrendous acts based upon it. And so, you know, when I, as, as I'm telling the story, I also wanted to have the main character deal with those issues, deal with having justifiable anger, anger that most people would say, I I understand that anger. I understand why you're angry and how do you channel that anger uh, towards uh, fighting injustice and at what point might the anger, however, also consume you if you're not careful, right? And so I wanted to play along with that, um, but I also didn't want to give it like a kumbaya at the end. Well, love conquers all. (laughs) I didn't want to give it, I wanted to make it realistic, right? Where this person, has this anger and it's something that gives them strength, even if at the same time, it's something that they have to be concerned with. Um, because I thought that was just a, that's just a very human understanding. Maris is such a compelling character and she's also surrounded by this incredible team of women, refugees, <laughs> yeah. smart mouth friends, World War One veterans. But I was, as you were talking about that, I was wondering whether, you know, does each of those characters also kind of represent a different way to handle or process that anger because you have people who are, you know, into conspiracy theories or are more cynical or into impetuous action or just kind of, you know, exhausted and weary about the whole thing. Were they kind of a microcosm of the different ways that you can confront an insurmountable challenge? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a great point. And I think in many ways, it's funny, I haven't thought of it like that, but I think in some ways I see myself, I saw myself doing that, right? Um, you're, 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 you're faced with this injustice, you're faced with this, this senseless hatred, how do you react to it? And people are going to have different reactions. And certainly if I, if I look at the history during that time period, people had different reactions, right? There were, there were different groups that popped up. And so you're right, among the various figures that orbit Maurice, there are there are the people who involve themselves in conspiracy theories. There are radical socialists. There are the others who say, no, uh, capitalism is what's going to destroy this, right? Some form of democratic capitalism. And, you know, and you have everything in between. You have uh, appeals to Marcus Garvey and other things, right? And so there are all of these different forces and all of them are trying to figure out how am I going to deal with this, this senseless hate, this, as you said, this insurmountable challenge. Um, and they're all trying to do it their own way in many ways. Yeah. So the other story that deals with slavery and with an alternate history of rebellion and emancipation is the Black God's Drums. 
And here we're living in an alternate history. There are airships. The U.S. Civil War is going in a very different direction than the one that we know. Tell me a bit about Creeper and the world that she lives in. Yeah, this was uh, this story existed before Ringshot was even a, a glimmer, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I, I thought up this story and I actually wanted to tell the story of the Black Atlantic, right? Of all these sparse communities, which some people also call, as you point out, the African diaspora. And I want to talk about these various Black Atlantic communities and how they intersect. And so when I first thought about this world, I actually wanted to set it uh, based on a, sec- a character who's a secondary character in the Black Gods drums, Anne-Marie, the ship captain. And it was going to be her story. And it was going to involve her on her ship kind of traversing back and forth at different ports and what have you, almost like a Black Atlantic Sinbad in some ways, right? And having various adventures. Um, and, and she's a very cool character. She's like yeah, swashbuckling. Right. It's her ship. She's, you know. Yeah, and she, she was the center. And, and then I came back and, I, you know, you take a, a second stab at it. And I said, what if I, instead of traversing all these, all these places in the skies, what if I set it in a certain, in one place? And one of that place was New Orleans, having grown up in Houston and New Orleans being next door and having visited so many times. Um, and when I said it there, uh, Creeper as a character just emerged as this, this voice that could speak for New Orleans, that could, that people could see, uh, see New Orleans through her eyes. Right. And I said, I can't do it through Anne Marie's cause she would be a visitor. I, I need somebody who knows New Orleans, who, who walks the streets, knows what it smells like, knows what it looks like, uh, doesn't, is, isn't fascinated by things because this is every day to her. Um, and so she just came about almost naturally. I remember I started writing and, you know, she was one of my favorite characters to write, uh, this, this young character who is in many ways homeless, who is, uh, living by, you know, uh, living by her own wits and her own ability to survive. Um, and actually takes the initiative to try to find a way out of her predicament because she still has these fantastic dreams. Right. Uh, and so that, that was that was laying down the base of the character. And oh, yes, she has a, a goddess that lives in her head. <laughs> right? that, was, that was that was an extra bonus. I was like, why not? <laughs> and, why not? and what's the what's the point of departure for that history? Where did where did things branch from what we know? Yeah, this world pretty much looks like ours um, until certain events in the Haitian Revolution. Uh, and the revolution itself goes much as we think of it going. And at a certain point when Napoleon Bonaparte sends his troops over to, uh, you know, basically eventually re-enslave <laughs> uh, the colony, um, what happens here is a bit of steampunk weather machinery <laughs> changes the course of things. And uh, it alters the course of the world in many ways. And part of this was my wanting to make the Haitian Revolution um, basically show how important the Haitian Revolution was in our own history by, you know, magnifying and exaggerating even, even more. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's Haiti is sits at the at the heart of this. Your other group of stories is the Dead Gene universe, where yeah. your latest book, A Master of Gene, is set. And here we have a world where in the mid-1800s, a Sudanese mystic and inventor Al-Jahiz breaks the barrier that separates the world of humans from the world of the gene. 
And as they enter our world, they're not just bringing magic, but also technology. So we enter a 1910 Cairo that is an independent country, that is a technological powerhouse filled with airships, and aerial tram cars and electricity, as well as different supernatural beings all mixed in together. Our first two introductions to this alternate history are two novellas that I loved, A Dead Gene in Cairo and The Haunting of Tramcar uh, 015. What was the spark that got you working on that story? Because Cairo's a long way from Haiti and the American <laughs> South. I think I, I, w- I was doing a lot of adjuncting at the time. I was working on my PhD and I was, I was teaching a lot of World Civ. And so I ended up talking a lot about anti-colonialism. And there are ways that you know, the Haitian Revolution, uh, the Trinidadian uh, writer and uh, celebrated activist C.L.R. James wrote his book, Black Jacobins, in the 1930s. And he writes this book about the Haitian Revolution that happened, you know, by then would have happened, what, 120-something years past. And he basically says, if you want to understand what the, anti- the coming anti-colonial struggles are going to be like, look at the Haitian Revolution. Right. And so there are ways I think I can I can tie some of those together. But in some ways, I was I was thinking of anti-colonialism. I was I was looking at uh, the colonial world and thinking of how how would one have stopped this? Right. Or when colonialism ends and the quote unquote post-colonial happens, uh, what is that like? Um, How how do these new nations attempt to forge and create their own identities after coming out of this colonial, uh, this colonial mindset. And it was somewhere in, I, I always tell people, somewhere between thinking about that and uh, showing my students uh, Ponte Corvo's uh, The Battle of Algiers <laughs> one too many times, um, that the idea of this world came into being. Um, and basically I was like, well, what, what can stop the Maxim gun, <laughs> right? What can stop uh, the power of industrialization? And I was like, oh, magic. <laughs> right? I guess that'll be that'll be the, the cure for it. And that's how, in some ways, this world arose. Me wanting to tell this anti-colonial story that was at once supernatural uh, and also a bit humorous and fun. Mm-hmm. Right? And I was like, how can I put all that possibly together and get away with it? And uh, I think Adegin in Cairo, which was the first story, allowed me to do so. And there... They're interesting because they cross a number of different genres. They are, there's certainly, uh, certainly that fantasy and, and speculative fiction piece to it. They're also crime novels. They're like, they're pr- yeah. police procedurals at, uh, at the same time. So as, as you were starting to layer like genres on top of each other, um, was it just because it felt like the story fit? Like that's, that was the best way to show this, this place in this world that you created? Yeah. In many ways, you're right. It was, and I always tell people this. I said it's it's really weird because I I don't know that I sit down and I think too hard about genre when I'm writing. I'm like, oh no, I'm, I'm getting out of my lane. I'm crossing boundaries. You know, don't cross the streams, Ray. No, I, I'm not. I'm not actually thinking about that as much. I tend to. I'm trying to tell the story, and to me, um, it just seemed like normal that if I was going to have a shin here that they were going to be great builders because this is something that comes out of various, you know, in manuscripts about Jin and what have you, is that they're great builders. Well, it's the 1900s. What are they going to build? 
they're going to build something <laughs> modern, of course. And <laughs> we need a transportation system. That's what yeah, we need. Yeah, <laughs> it seemed like, yeah, yeah, they need transportation system. There's going to be bureaucracy. It just seemed like, you know, they were going to be these beings because they're magical. Like, we can adapt to anything, right? So we're not going to build you things that would have been built back in the past. We're going to build these more modern things. And then even in some of the, the writings and the mythology and works like, you know, like the, from the Thousand and One Nights, there were, you know, there were tales of like uh, automatons and different things. So there were a lot of things for me to pull from and never mm-hmm. feel like, oh, I'm kind of I'm kind of veering left. It's all seemed very natural because one of the other things I was doing, uh, the other book I'd read, of course, was Edward Said's Orientalism in grad school. And so another thing I was doing was really trying to subvert this notion of the Oriental East, right, as backwards, as primitivism and what have you, as opposed to, you know, the forward thinking Occidentals. I just wanted to subvert that completely and and have this world that mashed it all together that, you know, didn't make that would not always make sense to Western eyes, but made sense to itself. So this is also an advertisement for, you know, never turn down that uh, adjunct professor job where you have to teach. <laughs> yeah, to teach yeah it, hey, it gets you to grad school, right? Yeah. And it, you never That's know right. what ideas it's going to uh, whip up in your head as you're going along. You you gained momentum for this world through through two novellas. And, and novellas are kind of a funny form. Yeah. Is it a way for you to kind of try a place on or try an idea on for size? Or what what does that form give you? Yeah, um, the form gives me the fact that I'm an overwriter. <laughs> and when I try to write a short story... <laughs> so short story plus. <laughs> I end up with a dead shit in Cairo. And I end up with no place to publish it. And thankfully, Tor comes along and says, hey, we'd like to do novelettes and novellas. And I'm like, thank you. In fact, that's how a dead shit in Cairo came about. I wrote the story. I expected it to simply go nowhere because I was like, it's larger, it's longer than eight mm-hmm. than anything can be published. And I simply put out a call on Facebook of all places, just randomly, you know, any place I could publish this. And uh, at the time, Diana Foe was an editor at Tor. She was running her own steampunk site. I had built it as steampunk. And she was like, hey, send it to me. And I did. And well, here we are. <laughs> You know, so it was almost like she was my uh, editor godmother, fairy godmother, just sitting in the wings uh, who happened to pick it up. I mean, how much luck and chance is that? Uh, but that's how that came about. And writing that, writing when I wrote A Dead Gen in Cairo, I, I did not have any plans to do anything else. <laughs> that's the secret. <laughs> I didn't have plans to go on and create another novella or write a book. Um, but because I think I like world building, I always left doors open. So I always knew I could go somewhere else. I, I, I left right. enough doors open that I didn't shut everything. So that's, that's just how I tend to, I think it comes from my father whenever we would see a movie and if they had an ending that like, they had that little extra scene at the end where we would watch movies back in the day, he'd be like, there's going to be a second one. I'd be like, there's not going to be a second one. Dad. They just put that in there. He's like, no, no, there's going to be a second one. It didn't matter what the movie was. He was certain. <laughs> and so I think I tend to do that with my, with my world building. And so when I got the very unexpected and humbling, like, we like this world, we like this story, give us more. Um, I had a reason to think of more. And that's when the Haunted Tram Car 015 came about. And then when that did well, which I was surprised, it's like, it's, it's a silly story. It's about candy. <laughs> So when that did well, um, I said, okay, I think I can do a novel here. And here we are. Well, and just to to kind of 
talk the industry side for a second. You know, novellas and standalone short stories used to be the hardest of the hard sells for for publishers, but it feels like ebooks have made it easier to try different sizes and lengths of stories on for size compared to the like it's two hundred and forty eight pages or mm-hmm. get out of here. Right. Uh, so it was it was interesting to watch the interest build in the first two novellas and and know that you could have either just gone on like novella at a time right. you know in you know into infinity <laughs> or in this case um you you switch gears and go for a, you know what's kind of a traditional full length work of fiction so i'm i'm interested in how it felt to move into that bigger scale where you're looking at you know a much you know it's a bigger broader canvas to fill you know in in some ways for me it was it was trying to, um, how shall I say, uh, turn on certain muscles that I had turned off. Because when I first started writing, like every uh, every very wide-eyed, eager, and have no idea what they're doing, uh, want to be a writer person, I was like, I'm writing a novel. And I had written a gigantic, unpublishable fantasy tome, like, like four books, right? Like massive doorstopper. And so Excellent. I said I was an overwriter, so it's no problem for me to churn out, you know, hundreds of pages. Um, and I kind of turned that off when I realized, okay, I need to be serious about this. And I started looking at the short story market. And I actually, you know, kind of forced myself to learn how to write a short story. Um, and then I would end up writing, some of them would turn to novellas. And as you said, luckily, uh, it was like the right place at the right time this ad, this place opens up that says, hey, we would like to look at novellas. And you're right. I think ebooks, I think people wanting to read things that want, wanting to dedicate themselves to something that may not be 200, 300 pages, but that they can get through pretty easily on a commute or, you know, on a weekend. Mm-hmm. I think that simply became something that that, that made this a viable um, medium to to sell. And so, you know, I think in the beginning, uh, when I when I started writing short stories and and then moving into novellas, I knew that I was be going back to the novel world. But I was thinking like, am I going to still be able to do that? Do I still know how? Um, certainly, I'm not writing the same way I was writing way back then. Those those things are terrible, <laughs> right? Will I? How will I um, hone my ability to you know write a large story but not overwrite? And so, it it was my a master Jin was my my first return to that and. I found that, you know, um, some muscles had atrophied. I found that others uh, I remembered and I found that I had brand new muscles that I had that I could uh, rely on to shape the story. And so, yeah, it, it, it wasn't, it was not as much of a challenge, an uphill challenge as I thought it would be when I started. I mean, writing it was a challenge itself, but writing in a mm-hmm. different form did not turn out to be like the, oh my goodness, I'm going to get completely lost and I won't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so, so did you did you use your self-knowledge from the last two novellas to go okay now i'm going to write a novella and end up with a full-length novel <laughs> in, in some ways so here's what happened after i wrote a dead shit in cairo uh like i said most of the world was in my head because i just written that um but when i when i realized like oh people want more i sat down i think a year after that came out and i made myself a timeline and so that became like my guidebook it was like my, you know, okay. 
Dungeons and Dragons, you have your, your Monsters Manual, your Fiends portfolio became my, yeah, my yeah. basic little Bible of like, this is the world. Um, and it's a full timeline. And so when I went back to write both The Haunting of Tramcar 015, when I went back to write The Haunting of, Tr- the Haunting of Tramcar 015, that was me having this guide and now saying, okay, do something with it. And that story emerged. Mm-hmm. And you see more of the world in that story. You like see me plugging bits of the world that I'd grown. And so by the time it came for, it came around to the novel, I luckily had this guy that I could always go back to and said, when did this happen? When did this happen? Okay. Uh, I think I can create a story here. The Black God's Drums and the Gene stories are both alternate histories. You've yeah. a point of divergence and that creates mm-hmm. a new world. Is that... Is that kind of an occupational hazard for historians? Like, do you find yourself cruising up and down the historical timeline going, yeah. what if I like twisted right here? What would right. happen then? I mean, you know, you know, it is. And it's interesting that I love playing around with that. But at the other, on the other side, I also not to take it, not to take it too seriously. Like I mm-hmm. love, I love counterfactuals, but at the end of the day, I know that a counter, there's only one history, right? It's only the history. The only history that happened is the one in which we existed. As a historian, right? And so anything I tweak, anything can happen, right? As I always say, uh, the we could be now be living in the global world of Paraguay, right? That's that's where we live right now mm-hmm. because Paraguay has dominated the world because anything can happen when you play with history. And so what I always, whenever I, I'm on some kind of, in some kind of group or something and people are arguing about which counterfactual is more likely than the other, I say they're, they're all equally, it's unlikely. <laughs> Because you've you've altered history, and so it's all yeah. fictional now, right? No historian is going to come in and say, "Well, that fiction is a bit more." No, it's, just, it's all fiction now, and so I, I don't mind doing it because I understand that. To me, I always say, "What is more important to me when I think of alternate history and counterfactuals is, I think, when you ask, like, what was the point of divergence and why choose that point of divergence? That's always what's more mm-hmm. important, more important to me. Mm-hmm. I think often." What we're often the story we're often trying to tell, you know, whether it's the man of the high castle or what have you, we're trying to tell a story based on what we changed and talking about why that was so important to our own history. Right. Uh, right. And so I'm addition in Cairo. I'm talking about the colonialism in our own world and the various problems during colonialism and the post-colonial turn. Uh, if I'm looking at uh, the Black God's drums, I'm talking about the civil war in our world and the history of slavery, enslavement, and uh, of course, um, the importance of Haiti. I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. And like everything else I do is, is fun. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to it's not going to dislodge the history that is. And so somehow in my head, I keep those two things apart. Um, even if as I'm going down the timeline, yeah, I'm always like, what if this had happened? What if the Prussians had done this? And, you know, anything can happen. Yeah. Now let's talk a bit about your origin story. You moved from the U.S. to Trinidad. I was bitten by a spider. No, no, it didn't happen. Excellent. (laughs) It can happen. It can happen anywhere. But um, uh, live with your grandparents. Can you give me a scene or two from that childhood? How was growing up in Trinidad as a little kid? Yeah. So, yeah, I was sent. I was born in the United States, but sent back. Um, Growing up with my grandparents was, uh, I I lived in a place called Chagones in Trinidad, was living in the middle of a vibrant uh, Afro-Caribbean community, people who had been the descendants, of course, of 
the Middle Passage and enslaved people who had moved to Trinidad uh, from various other islands, um, and also uh, a vibrant uh, in, in Indian community, uh, part of the Indian diaspora who had been brought to Trinidad as indentured servants um, following the end of slavery in the in the later in the latter nineteenth century, and so. I grew up in the middle of this this mix, right? Where uh, I was, you know, I was in the middle of um, of Hindu festivals as well as various forms of Afro Caribbean things like carnival or what have you. I, I listened to various types of music. I had a, a great divergence of food, and so um, one of the things that I always had was a great mix of folklore. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, I lived in a world where it was normal to talk about the possibility of witches or sukuya type of vampires that might steal the breath of people who could take off their skin and what have you, where people would warn you about these things. I grew up watching uh, Hindi TV, you know, and watching the Mahabhatra play out with various gods or what have you. And so um, I was always in this world where the fantastic seemed, always had this appeal to me. Um, and I was always interested in it. And so, yeah, that was, that was, that was my early, that was my early life. And then you go right from that back to the U S yeah, at eight to New years York. old. At, to, yeah. <laughs> and so what was that contrast like? Cause that's a bit of a switch. Yeah, it, it was, it was a shock. And of course, by that time, I didn't know anything about my previous New York life. I was in, I, cause I was born and sent back pretty early, like after age one. So I didn't know anything about <laughs> <laughs> my mm -hmm. life in this. So it was like I was, it was almost like I was having the immigrant experience of this kid coming to this brand new place, uh, meeting, I'd met my parents before, but understanding like, oh, these are my parents' parents. <laughs> Not my, these are my actual parents. And I have a younger sister now. It's interesting. Uh, you know, and just getting acculturated to all of that and getting acculturated to America and, you know, being of all places, New York. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> you know, and so it, it was it was a it was an interesting time. But, you know, one thing about as you're a kid, you're very malleable. And so, you know, kids adjust. And so I, I just took it in stride. It's looking back at it. I think like, wow, that was a big switch. But then it was just like, OK, sure. I'm living in New York now. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and that's yeah, that sci fi part really got I think that part even got that speculative part got blown up a bit because my parents were both, you know, my father introduced me to a ton of Godzilla movies and old Boris Karloff films. My mother loved old black and white Twilight Zones and Star Trek. And so it, what, what the base that it started in Trinidad just expanded. You've, you've spoken in other interviews about the sociologist and activist W.B.B. Du Bois mm -hmm. and his notion of double consciousness, of being yeah. both black yeah. and American. So you layer the immigrant experience on top of that and you get like a, a triple consciousness. <laughs> yeah. How does that, you know, how does being able to tap into that immigrant experience change things up for you as a writer? Yeah, I think um, you people probably see it in my work and the way I tried to bridge these various uh, places like the, like the Black God's Drums. One of the reasons I wanted to choose New Orleans was New Orleans was this is this perfect port uh, place that borders the Caribbean. Right. And yet it's the mainland United States. And so it's this place where in our own history, simply for the black diaspora, it has people coming from all over, from other parts of North America, from the Caribbean and what have you 
coming together in this one place and melding these various cultures. And I'm, I'm always fascinated by that. It's what I study, in fact, in my own, um, in my academic sense. I, I look at the way there are these cross currents and movements across the Black Atlantic, uh, movements of people or ideas and philosophies and what, or culture and philosophies or what have you. And so I think I always try to bring some of that where uh, I am less interested in borders or who belongs to what nationality because I've, I've lived in too many mm-hmm. places where I see the bridge as a person whose parents come from the Caribbean and, you know, ended up living in Texas and being steeped in Southern African-American culture and folklore and yet also having this background also of this Caribbean folklore and, and finding more commonalities than trying to root out all the differences. You know, I think that's just, you see that in a lot of my work. And so whether it's in somebody like Michael George and ring shout, you know, who travels all these different places and opens up this juke joint in the middle of uh, Macon, Georgia, or again, it's the black guys drums. I, I like this, this movement, or even in a master of Jin, uh, putting a bit of new Orleans in Cairo. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I like this notion of, of movement of people. So you have this storytelling tradition coming out of Trinidad. You've got Godzilla and Star Trek <laughs> coming from the parents. Yeah, uh, yeah. When do you when did you start making your own stories? Uh, you know, I, I think early I think nearly everybody who does some kind of creativity probably will probably tell you like I'm going to tell you it started when I was a kid. It started me. Uh, wanting to write my own little stories or tell my own, make little comic books. And they were mostly for my sister or my friends or what have you. Um, But I never thought about doing anything serious. Like, oh, I could be a writer, like one of these people I read. I don't think I thought of any of that until after college. It just never clicked in my head that this is something that I would do and I'd be looking to have my name placed in the library next to all these writers. I didn't really think about that till after college. And I mean, I can go into various reasons, social and what have you, why that is, social, personal, and why that is, but it wasn't until then. And as I told you before, when I first started, I had no idea what I was doing (laughs) because uh, my relationship to the industry was like, you know, a million miles away. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Here I was, I was like in the wilderness. I had no idea where the industry lived. I didn't know where it, where it hung out. I didn't yeah. know where where it was. And so I was kind of in the wilderness, kind of doing my own thing. And it, it would take quite a while before, oh, this is how these things are done. And here, oh, I finally met, uh, I finally met the industry. And this is what the industry wants. Great. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it took a while uh, before I started thinking about how to do this stuff seriously. Let's talk about the day job for a bit. And by day job, I mean the serious academic career where you're a historian and professor. What are you working on right now? Um, I'm working on my manuscript, which uh, looks at, it's called, um, it's called Freedom's Jubilee. And it looks at uh, how British emancipation in the Caribbean in the 1830s uh, has this impact on American abolitionism in the United States. And so that's my, it's my big project right now. <laughs> How long has that project been going on? <laughs> oh, uh, you know, first it was a dissertation <laughs> mm-hmm. and then it was turned into a manuscript and now it's on its last legs of it's got to get out the door to the publisher. And so it's, it's, it's been a few years. It's, it's, it's older than Ring Shout, I'll tell you that. <laughs> 
but not older than Black God's drums, amazingly. Yeah. Okay. So how does that job feed this one? Are you are you finding bits of stories or situations and tucking them away for later, or is it are these two different worlds? You know, sometimes I do, and I don't know that I always know that I'm doing this. When I first came across, for instance, the uh, the the foundation of what would become Ring Shout of Clannis Monsters, I came across that when I was doing my master's long before I went for a PhD. This was like 20 years ago. <laughs> and I did. I tucked it away and didn't know what I was going to do with it. Um, I just I just left it there and I didn't return to it for another 15 years. And it was when I returned to it, I suddenly, oh, I have something to do. And so I don't think it's always like I'm never reading and mining and thinking, oh, I can use this. It tends to be that when the story comes to me, it's probably something that I came across a long time ago. And stories, it just comes to me. So I wrote a short story called The Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington. And I'd known about that for a while, but the story didn't come to me until years later. And so all this to say... I don't know if it's so much as I'm I'm thinking of these ideas and jotting them down, saying, "Oh, that'll be good." It's more so the idea coming to me and then realizing a while later, "Oh, I think I know where I got this from." Something I read a year or two ago um, is now moving upon me to do something. So, as you've as you've been working in fiction, as you've been you know, writing your own book now, are there authors who you reach to or authors who you looked at? Uh, who were either kind of inspiration behind the scenes mm-hmm. or who you did kind of direct study of as you're thinking, okay, how am I going to tackle this? Yeah, I mean, probably, and obviously she's going to get annoyed at hearing her name all the time, but N.K. Jemison <laughs> probably uh, revolutionized how I was reading some of her works, um, reading the Inheritance Trilogy, just blew my mm-hmm. mind and just made me such rethink. A great, yeah, such a great setup. That's a great setup. Enslaved gods? Come on. And so yeah. I was just made me rethink my own approach um, to thinking about speculative fiction and really allowing myself to imagine more. Like I felt like I'd like earlier on, believe it or not, I'd kind of confined what it was I was supposed to be thinking about uh, speculative fiction. And I think reading some of her works really made me think about, no, it can be much more. And, you know, other writers like um, Daniel Jose Older and others, you know, reading a lot of their works and, looking at how uh, Daniel, for instance, uh, some of his works uses, like how he uses New York, like, like or Brooklyn, like, oh, mm-hmm. I know that place. I've been there, right? And, and so a lot of work like that, I think, has really been influential. So as, you've, as you're looking across your body of work now, do you have characters in there that you want to come back to where you feel like there's still a lot of story left in them that you haven't gotten <laughs> out yet? Oh, what a great question. Uh, Maybe, so, I mean, <laughs> like I always say, like I, I, I sometimes don't like people are always like, what's next? And I was like, sometimes I have an idea of what's next, but for a lot of stuff that I've recently written, um, I don't really have anything that's like, oh, I know that's what I'm going to do. Um, for mm-hmm. one thing, for as much as I've been writing a lot of this uh, counterfactual stuff, um, if you would ask me what I read, I'm I, I'm a huge, you know, fantasy reader. If you asked me what I was going to write, it was going to be some ridiculous, huge, epic fantasy tome. <laughs> and so even doing... Still, we're still waiting for yeah. the giant four-volume <laughs> fantasy novel. Even doing this alternate world stuff, uh, it's, it's great, it's fun, and yet it still seems like, wow, who would have thought that this is what I would be writing and this is what we'd be doing so well? 
Um, you wouldn't know that from the stuff I mostly read. Uh, so all this to say, um, I, 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 I always say like, I, I don't know what's coming next. I often don't. And as far as like the books that I've written, because often, often it takes people saying, I really like that. And then me sitting in with it for a while. And then me saying, okay, I think I have an idea now. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, whatever's coming, we can't wait. <laughs> Fenderson, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. This was a great discussion. I've been speaking with P. Jelly Clark, author of the novella Ring Shout, as well as the marvelous book set in the Dead Gene universe. Those books and the other ones we talked about can be found at Kobo and Conversations, home on the web at kobo.com slash conversation. Check the show notes for a link and make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.